It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you for subscribing. If you haven't already done so, you can very easily do it. You just click the subscribe button. If you're already listening on a device, on an app, whether it's you know the Google uh, Podcast app or it's the iTunes or whatever, there should be a button right there. I'll give you a second. You can look for it. Okay, did you find it? All right, you just click subscribe, and then you can listen every day when it comes directly to your phone or your tablet. If you haven't already done it, go to the Pete Callender Show dot com click subscribe right there and that'll do it as well um you can also become a patron of the program and uh you know take advantage of the exclusive content that we've got like our live streams doing one tonight there's a live stream tonight so if you want in on that head on over to the pete show.com there's a link at the top it says something like exclusive content become a patron that sort of thing you click there and it takes you to the patreon page which is where we run that off of patrons like eric ray Lori. Rick, Ben, Tammy, Ann, Thigpen, Mark, Grant, David, and Cindy, they all make the show possible. You can as well. Thank you very much for everybody uh, for becoming patrons of the show. All right. So Governor Roy Cooper may have lifted most of the COVID restrictions, but he has not rescinded the declaration of emergency. And in fact, there's still an emergency order in place. The near limitless and indefinite power Governor Cooper has wielded over the last year has prompted the legislature to look at changing the Emergency Management Act to try to put some restraints on future governors. Jessica Thompson is an attorney at Pacific Legal Foundation, which specializes in litigation across America aimed at protecting individual liberty as guaranteed under the Constitution. Welcome back to the show, Jessica. How are you? I'm doing great, Pete. Thank you for having me on. Certainly. So um, for folks who may not recall or uh, may not even know anything about the case, uh, explain who your client Crystal Waldron is and her bar, what, Club 519 in Greenville. That's right. So Crystal Waldron is a co-owner of Club 519. She is an Eastern North Carolina native, an ECU grad, and so she owns this bar in Uptown Greenville, and she's owned it for almost two decades now and operated it with her husband, Rob. Uh, so they're, they're a huge part of the community there in Greenville. And, uh, you know, this is their primary source of income. And so when Governor Cooper closed down their uh, private bar uh, back in March of 2020, you know, it was just devastating, like financially, emotionally, everything. I mean, of course, initially everybody's, okay, two weeks to flatten the curve. And then as, as time drug on, uh, you know, that that started to, to wane and it particularly did so once uh, Governor Cooper said, oh, yeah, we're going to we're going to reopen, you know, at the end of May. But then he allowed bars inside of restaurants, inside of breweries, wineries and distilleries. They could all open up, but private bars stayed closed. And so we ended up filing lawsuit against Governor Cooper in December of 2020. Um, and so. We were arguing that uh, not only did this violate the Equal Protection Clause of the North Carolina Constitution, because you're allowing bars in some conditions to open, but but not Crystal's bar, uh, it also violated her right to the fruits of her labor. Uh, North Carolina's Constitution is one of the best state constitutions, in, in my opinion, because it enshrines that uh, economic liberty 
in our state constitution, Article One, Section One. Uh, and so we sued under uh, under that article. So uh, I, I, this is going to sound weird, but I, I heard you mention Uptown Greenville. Now, I'm only aware of one city in this state that has an Uptown, and that's Charlotte. Is and but I admit I know nothing really about Greenville. <laughs> so is that is that a thing? Uptown versus downtown? Yeah. It is. Well, so it's their downtown. They oh, they right. refer to it as uptown, right. but it's their little downtown uh, part of the city where they have all the arts and and restaurants and and uh, bars and and things like that for people to gather. Charlotte is the same way. It's downtown, but it's uptown. They 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 rebranded it as uptown. I had not heard right. of a, any other city that did that. So we have mm-hmm. two now in North Carolina. Good to know. Uh, go. I think the yeah. last time I was the only time I've ever been to Greenville, North Carolina, was. Uh, back in college when widespread panic played on campus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was like 25 years ago. Anyway, <laughs> so, uh, but from what I understand, this bar is, like, this is a, a mainstay of the Greenville area, right? Like, all of the uh, the college kids know it, like, even some of the faculty, right? Like, everyone, everyone knows this place. Yeah, it's a, and it's a popular place for the alumni to come back to, you know, the medical students, the, you know, they even have people from outside in the, in Greenville County that, that come into town. And whenever they come into town, they want to go see Robin Crystal at Club 519. It's a, it's a mainstay. And and that's what you get when you've been open for two decades and, and you treat people well and, and you're a part of the community. You know, they have kids, they, they're from Eastern North Carolina. And uh, yeah, they're just a major mainstay there. So one of the things that we've talked about this before when uh, I've had you on the the differentiation between types of bars that North Carolina statute makes. And that's and without getting too sort of into the weeds, but their bar is treated differently than, say, a bar at Applebee's. Right. And explain why. Sure. And so this is before Governor Cooper's executive orders, the ABC laws. And honestly, this is a bit antiquated and probably left over from the prohibition era. But if you do not serve food and make uh, over 30 percent of your profits from food so you can sell chips and things. But if you don't make over 30 percent of your profits from food, then you're considered a private bar. And that's a separate permit from a bar inside of an Applebee's or even a Buffalo Wild Wings or a Pantana Bob's if you've been on a college campus. Uh, And so that's a different uh, alcohol license. And then also breweries, wineries, and distilleries, they have different alcohol licenses as well. Uh, But but that's, it's not a distinction. Uh, You know, I'm sure we'll get to this, but there's not a scientific or uh, data-driven difference about uh, the safety precautions that take place in these different bars. Well, that that does lead to the next question, which is why is there a difference? Is it that COVID, I know this is a very smart virus, it knows all sorts of things. Does it know the difference between what kind of a license a bar mm-hmm. has? Well, so we, we have an answer from the governor's council on that. Uh, Judge Gale, when we had our preliminary injunction hearing in February, implored, he just begged uh, the governor's council please provide me with a scientific reason for treating these bars differently. Isn't a bar a bar? And ultimately they had to confess that yes, all of our studies, all of the articles that we're pointing to, there's no distinction of a bar inside of uh, Applebee's like we were talking about a bar inside of a winery brewery. I mean, bottle shops were open where you can go and grab your own beer and enjoy it on the patio. 
uh, there's no distinction between these other bars, the vast majority of bars that were open across the state and the private bars, which there are only a thousand of them. Men, many of them are individually owned. Uh, there's no distinction in these bars um, that makes a difference for COVID. Right. They're not it's not more dangerous simply because you sell 25 percent of your total revenue is food. <laughs> right? It doesn't make Absolutely. it more or less dangerous uh, as far as COVID is concerned. And you also learned that um, they were making I found this uh, sort of galling, uh, just the audacity of making this argument that it's a it's a tourism argument, right? That, mm-hmm. well, breweries and wineries, they're they're basically the same thing and they may not sell. 30% of their food or, or revenue for food. But, um, but you know, it's a tourism thing. And, you know, they've already gotten money in some cases from the state. So I guess that's the thing. You just need to get on the state dole, and get some incentive <laughs> money, and then you get treated special. Yeah, absolutely. So that was the, I think, the most appalling part of the first part of our litigation is that we learned and so this came out in some litigation over the summer and then it was affirmed in our litigation that as part of the dimmer switch approach which i know your listeners are familiar with and and familiar from the news of hearing governor cooper and mandy cohen say that we follow a dimmer switch approach well under that dimmer switch approach they felt that they had the capacity or the power under the emergency management act to consider the economics and the contribution to the gdp for the state and so they actually put into writing that breweries and wineries deserve to be open because they contribute more to the gdp of the state than private bars do and because the general assembly and the governor has provided incentives to entice breweries and wineries to open up in our state then we need to keep them open and make sure that they survive and so we got to protect our investment but you know that that's just blatantly ignoring it's it's economic discrimination but is blatantly ignoring the economic rights of these individuals who run these private bars and all the individuals who work there not to mention the fact that he shut down everything like i don't understand how you make a tourism argument when you're telling people that they can't travel and every other state is saying the same thing we were everybody's locked down why how could you make a tourism argument it was particularly obnoxious because we filed our suit, like I said, at the end of December, and this was when Governor Cooper said that we couldn't gather, we couldn't travel to go see our families for Thanksgiving and Christmas, that we shouldn't gather with our families for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And then here he is making an argument that wineries and breweries are better because they attract tourists to the state. I mean, that's it's just unnerving yeah um obnoxious that's a great word for it um and i had forgotten the timing of it too you know adding insult to the injury uh, at that um now you so you go into court you see that you're in front of this judge judge gale if i recall he's a bankruptcy attorney or a business uh, a business court um or has some experience in business court and so i think uh you were kind of confident that he would understand some of these arguments that you were making at the time and did you did you feel like you got uh, that kind of understanding and that kind of a reception? Absolutely. So a lot of the challenges to the governor's orders had appeared before Judge Gale. So he was extremely familiar with the case law as it related to COVID. But he he also, you know, just really dug into our briefs. And I was quoting a case from the 40s or the 50s. And, and he knew exactly the case I was talking about and knew the details that I was talking about. So he was a really great judge, gave us a fair hearing. I think he gave us a fair hearing to both sides. Um, but unfortunately, we hit a curveball the next week 
Uh, so we had this hearing on February 18th. It was a Thursday. Uh, the following Tuesday, uh, Governor Cooper announces that private bars can open indoors. <laughs> and so our clients allowed to open. But, uh, you know, you have to think whenever you uh, don't have such a great hearing, maybe it's better just to allow them to open up a little bit so you can uh, avoid a bad ruling. More with Jessica in a minute. First, uh, I got to tell you, Christy and I, uh, we're right now going through all of the ideas about what do we want our yard to be like at our new home when we move in. And uh, it's being built. And so it's it's just going to be, you know, they're going to put down a bunch of sod, but we're thinking maybe we need some gardens. Maybe we'd like to plant a garden, have some vegetables and stuff. How do we do that? And um, what kind of tools are we going to need? And coming from an apartment, we used to have a house. I used to have a whole shed full of uh, tools and I don't anymore. We got rid of them all years ago when we sold our house. Well, now I'm going to have to resupply. And that means I've already gone. I've got a weed eater from General Equipment Rental. But I, I know I want to do something that's going to be a little bit larger. I don't want to have to buy all those tools. I'm in luck. General Equipment Rental has equipment that I can rent as well. And I just rent their equipment. I use it like a tiller if I'm going to plant some gardens and such. Maybe I'm going to need uh, like a concrete mixer because I want to pour a slab down or something. I shouldn't have said that because don't they charge you for the impervious surfaces in this county? Anyway, forget I said that, GovCo. Um, General Equipment Rental, they're your source for not just your you know small and, and uh, heavy equipment rental needs, but also for yard equipment, power tools, outdoor power equipment from Husqvarna and Honda. They're your official licensed service and sales uh, provider for both of those product lines. That means they know their stuff. They're specialists. So they know the the equipment. They know the changes in year-to-year models and series and all of that stuff. So whether you want to rent some, you know, tillers or, or pressure washers, or you want to buy a chainsaw or a hedge clipper, same place, great deals, general equipment rental in Weaverville, and uh, they're at the intersection of Merriman and um, Reams Creek Road. A huge parking lot, so if you got the work truck, it's totally fine. If you're, you know, carrying <laughs> heavy equipment, you're, it's totally fine. They got plenty of room to park there, uh, and uh, really helpful people. Third generation, uh, family owned business. So uh, go support one of the businesses that support the program, and tell them you heard it here on the podcast. General Equipment Rental. GeneralRents.com is the website. You can check out the inventory and the deals. GeneralRents.com and think outside your toolbox. My guest is Jessica Thompson. She is an attorney at Pacific Legal Foundation representing Crystal Waldron and Club 519 in Greenville. uh, And they are litigating the Emergency Management Act, essentially, um, in North Carolina and whether a governor has the kind of power to do what Governor Cooper has done over the last year. Um, Now, when you went into court and you had this hearing in front of Judge Gale and it all seemed to go very well. And I think we spoke maybe before the hearing. I think so, because I I, I seem to recall discussing with you like, well, what happens if he turns around or if they turn around and lift this restriction while your case is being decided, then they can can they toss that and then come back and and put it back on you, put another uh, executive order back on the club and the private bars and force you to sort of restart the whole litigation process. Right. And so that's a a legal uh, phenomenon that we call uh, capable of repetition, yet evading review. And and it's exactly what you're talking about, that the governor may uh, voluntarily stop uh, doing the treatment that, that we're suing about. And then once we drop the lawsuit, 
pick it back up again. But he didn't quite do that exactly. What he did here was he did allow private bars to open at a very limited capacity. But what was, again, obnoxious was he kept this disparate treatment between private bars and the vast majority of bars that were open throughout the state. So while we were open indoors at 30 percent, all the other bars were open at 50 percent. And again, how COVID knows that you're <laughs> at a Buffalo Wild Wings not ordering a single chicken wing and how that beer is different from a beer at Club 519. I just still have not seen that scientific study. Uh, but so at that point, we had a choice to make. We could continue to argue about the unequal treatment and the rights of Crystal and Rob to operate their bar and the fruits of their labor or we could drop our as applied challenges is what those are called, which is how the governor, how the governor or the government is treating you in this uh, condition. Or we could go after the root of the problem, which was the Emergency Management Act. And it's this bigger question of is the governor allowed to exercise this broad authority that he's been operating under for over a year now? Uh, and. I'm so lucky. Crystal and Club 519 are really just some of the bravest and most amazing clients because they've always understood that this was a bigger fight and bigger issues were involved than just economic liberty and just equal protection. And don't get me wrong, those are extremely important. Economic liberty is the lifeblood of our other political liberties. But they understood that this was setting a precedent for a huge grab of unilateral power and so we decided that we were going to go for the root of the problem and challenge the Emergency Management Act. So and I do want to uh, I, I do want to get into this, um, but I want to I want to mention something or or have you circle back to something you mentioned that this pattern because and I, I, I don't remember. I've done so many interviews about this stuff over the last year. So forgive me if I've already asked you this, but um, sure. this pattern, it seems to be a pattern. I think you mentioned it in your piece at Carolina Journal as well, that. When the governor gets challenged on something, he falls back. And, and you as an attorney, you probably recognize this as a strategy of some kind, right, where um, he will you know, reach for as much power as possible. And as soon as somebody files a lawsuit that looks like it's going to succeed, he dials it back in order to preserve the powers that he still retains. And is that your read on it? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what's going on. And that was part of the reason that that we made the decision to go after the Emergency Management Act because it's a way of evading judicial review. He's he's skirting around getting a bad decision from the court so that he can hold on to this executive unilateral authority that, that we believe is unconstitutional. So he's done this with the bowling alleys last summer. He's also done this with gyms. And now he's done it with private bars, which he the the private bars are the the business that he has been the toughest on throughout this pandemic. He has always had the greatest restrictions on those. And so in February, when case numbers were still pretty elevated to all of a sudden come around and say, oh, yeah, no, no, they can open up. I mean, it, it was just very clear that he's avoiding a potential ruling that could limit his power in some way. Um, so where do we stand now? Because now the focus is the Emergency Management Act, and I think that's the right focus. I think it probably should have been the, the subject of uh, many other challenges uh, by other entities for uh, for the duration, because it, it seems like there is a disagreement, as I understand it, between the interpretation of whether or not the governor should have gone to the Council of State for concurrence. Um, does that part 
factor into your argument at all? Like, does it matter to you if he had gotten concurrence from the Council of State or is your uh, is your argument larger than that? So that's a really smart question, because uh, earlier lawsuit from the lieutenant governor back last summer put that before the court right uh and it, it and it was uh unsuccessful in that challenge at least at the preliminary injunction phase but the lieutenant governor dropped the case and did not continue to pursue it and so that question is you know as far as the north carolina supreme court goes which is the final authority on the north carolina constitution that's still an open question but the reason that your question is so interesting is because Judge Gale did us one parting favor, and I understand that he's retired now, but as he was transferring our case to a three-judge panel in, in North Carolina for whenever you challenge the constitutionality of a statute, you have to appear before a three-judge panel. These judges are selected from across the state, and it's intended to really give you a fair and thorough review. And so when he transferred us to this three-judge panel, he added the North Carolina General Assembly as members of this lawsuit. Mm. So now we are suing not only the governor, the state of North Carolina for having this unconstitutional law, but our president pro tem, uh, Phil Berger, and the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, are also parties of our lawsuit now. And so it's going to be interesting to see, are they going to take the position that, you know, he should have went through uh, subsection B, which, you know, the reason I say that they might is because there are reform efforts, as you know, going Mm -hmm. through the North Carolina General Assembly. And they're very focused on having him have that check from the Council of State in those reform efforts. That's that's what we've seen in those reform bills that are, are circulating through the General Assembly. Uh, so we're gonna find out, but our challenge to the Emergency Management Act, we take the statute as a whole. There are several problems all throughout the statute. And our position is that judges are supposed to judge the constitutionality of the statute. They're not legislators. They're not supposed to rewrite the statute and fix it. And so if it's unconstitutional, strike it down and the General Assembly can get to work at putting in a new Emergency Management Act that doesn't violate our individual liberty. You know, speaking of liberty, you should take the liberty to head on down to Old Grouch's military surplus in downtown Clyde and get yourself some real U.S. military gear. If you are an outdoorsy type, you like hiking, camping, backpacking, um, bird watching. I'm trying to think of all of the different things. Maybe you're a hunter, you're a fisherman or woman, fisher person, fish person. Anyway, uh, if you like to spend time outdoors, you need the right gear. Okay, and you can go to a big box store, buy some stuff from China and uh, pay way more money for it or you can go to old grouch's military surplus and score real u.s military like gear so it's durable it's uh and it's better it's a better quality it's just a far superior quality because this is outfitting troops right also you're going to pay less than you do at the big box stores so head on over to old grouch's military surplus downtown clyde on main street the shop is open monday through saturday and it's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun uh ask tim to tell you about uh, how that got there. It's a pretty interesting story. Also, 24-7 at oldgrouch.com. That's oldgrouch.com. My guest is Jessica Thompson. She is an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, and she is representing Crystal and Bob Waldron, uh, the owners of Club 519 in Greenville, North Carolina, and uh, they are suing over what what initially started as it was an economic discrimination argument uh and now has uh now has sort of uh 
fixated on the Emergency Management Act, right? And this is whether or not a governor has the kind of power that uh, Roy Cooper has wielded over the last year. Is that accurate? Am I sum- am I summarizing this accurately? You are. Okay. You are. So um, it's interesting. You you mentioned that Judge Gale listed the General Assembly uh, as uh, defendants here because they're also running another bill, this sue and settle, uh, no collusive settlements bill, which would prohibit settling agreements where where the General Assembly is listed as a defendant. Um, It would prohibit any kind of a settlement being entered into if the General Assembly is not made aware of and signs off on that deal, because this this was what happened with the Board of Elections, with the lawsuits on, um, uh, you know, absentee ballots and all of that. And so if that bill passes, which I'm not so sure it does, but they're also trying to get at this issue from another way, it seems. Um, Is that do you have any idea why the judge would name the General Assembly as defendants if they're not seeking to be part of it? So they are uh, under the North Carolina uh, Rules of Civil Procedure, which are actually uh, part of the statutes that the General Assembly passes. Uh, They are required parties to this lawsuit. Once Ah. you start to challenge the constitutionality of a statute, uh, it's not only the state that you have to sue. The General Assembly also, uh, you know, whenever they passed uh, those uh, civil procedure rules, they said, well, if you're going to challenge the statute, we want to be a party and we want to be able to represent our interests in, in the case, too. And and these rules have are, are not they arose long before uh, the COVID executive order. So but we can understand, especially you talk about that sue and settle situation. One can understand why the General Assembly wants to be able to have a voice in right. court <laughs> and to represent uh, the laws that they've passed. Yeah, it seems really just ridiculous that and I thought that there was like some sort of legal precedent as well, that if you got, you know, two defendants, you can't sue at the detriment of the third, you know, <laughs> like it, do- right. it doesn't seem fair. Um, but anyway, uh, so that's an interesting sidebar. I was unaware that was there was any kind of relevance to that. And there may not be. I, like I said, I don't think the bill is going to pass because I doubt Governor Cooper is going to sign it. Um, so uh, this three judge panel, have you already gone before this three judge panel or and, and who who? Who's made up? Is this Supreme Court justices or is this Court of Appeals? Who's on the panel? Sure. So we are waiting for that panel to be convened. And and I can go off on a a tangent on that as well about how slow the wheels of justice (laughs) uh, moves, you know, especially during an emergency. You know, Governor Cooper says this is an emergency. So um, you would think that we'd be able to have our individual liberty vindicated uh, a little bit quicker. But um, so we are waiting to have that three judge panel convened, but there's a queue in front of us. Many people are uh, also challenging other laws that they feel are unconstitutional. But this three judge panel will be made up of superior court judges from across the state. And I do think this is interesting that they they make sure that the judges uh, represent different areas of the state um, because North Carolina is diverse and we have diverse interests in the mountains and in the coast and, and then they're in the Piedmont. And so. Uh, the three judges will represent different sections of North Carolina, superior court judges. So they're trial court judges. Um, they are typically very experienced judges, well-respected judges. Um, and from there, the decision could be taken directly to the North Carolina Supreme Court if the North Carolina Supreme Court uh, decides to take it up. Or we could go through the Court of Appeals and work our way up. So this is all still fe- or uh, uh, state level, not federal level, right? 
Yes, absolutely. So, and that's an important question. We decided to bring our lawsuit in state court and under the North Carolina uh, Constitution because, as I was saying before, we have a lot of great things in our North Carolina Constitution. Not only that, uh, that it enshrines the enjoyment of the fruits of their labor, but we also have an explicit separation of powers uh, clause in our Constitution. And it's in the Declaration of Rights, very similar to the Bill of Rights in the federal Constitution. But on the federal level, you know, we know Article Three represents the judiciary and Article One is the uh, the legislature, but they don't have a specific uh, provision saying these powers shall forever be separate and distinct. And that's exactly what our North Carolina Constitution says. Hmm. And so the North Carolina Constitution really provides more protection of our individual liberty. And so that's the reason we wanted to proceed in, in state court. I was not aware. I read your piece at carolinajournal.com, and the title of it is Why We're Still Fighting Governor Cooper. Uh, you said we're still fighting because we have yet to hear from the North Carolina Supreme Court whether the governor's unilateral exercise of executive authority for over a year violates the Constitution. Crystal, Crystal Waldron intends to find out. Um, I was not aware that this this explicit language exists in the Constitution and it essentially requires this right to go to the Supreme Court of the state, make them to make them weigh in on this, which I don't know if you're aware of the political makeup of the Supreme Court, but this might be a bit uncomfortable <laughs> for some of them. Uh, but uh, it, but I think it is an issue. I mean, politics aside, I mean, I think just from a, a legal standpoint, a constitutional individual liberty standpoint, it needs to be clarified because I don't think anybody ever anticipated a state of emergency lasting a year and a governor doing what this governor has done. I don't think that was anticipated. Absolutely. And so let me uh, take this in a couple of ways. So the North Carolina Supreme Court has interpreted that separation of powers clause in our Constitution and explained that, quote, it preserves individual liberty by safeguarding against the tyranny that may arise from the accumulation of power in one person or one body. And end quote. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. Uh, the North Carolina Constitution also has a wonderful provision that says uh, a fundamental recurrence to uh, the principles enshrined in the Constitution is absolutely necessary to preserve liberty. And so it is an important question that the, the North Carolina Supreme Court should hear. And the reason that we're so concerned about the executive exercising legislative power in a unilateral fashion is that this tyranny may arise whenever it's accumulated in one person. And whenever you have a legislative body making decisions, particularly when it's something as important as COVID-19 and, and how the state should respond and what businesses should open and what restrictions should be in place, it's a lot easier for individuals to get a hold of their representatives in the North Carolina General Assembly. Those are the people in their communities. And there's a lot more of them than just one person that to try to get a hold of. You know, Governor Cooper, it's a lot tougher to get a hold of him than your state representative or your state senator. And whenever the House and the Senate come together, I mean, there's certainly some fighting and some partisan politics that go on. But it's a deliberation and no one person gets exactly what they want. It ends up being a compromise. And that collaboration and that debate 
ends up leading to more buy-in from people because they feel that their their views have been represented, or at least they had a voice in the matter. And and I think that's a lot of the divisiveness that we've seen is because Governor Cooper has made all these decisions on his own. We'll have more with Jessica in a minute. First, uh, here's a decision that you can make on your own. It is calling Rowena Patton to buy or sell a home. This is the decision that Christy and I made. We called Rowena when we were looking to buy our house. And at first we were looking to build and we didn't really know what that meant. And so Rowena was like, look, if you're going to build, go to my website. There's a a whole blog post on all of the different things to uh, to walk through, sort of like a checklist, but also very helpful was estimated costs of building. And then we talked with um, you know her friend who was the lender, and we were uh, going over different loan programs that are available. So like we did not know all of the things that we did not know, right? <laughs> and Rowena and her all-star powerhouse team, they've helped us every step of the way, and we decided on a build to suit, which is in a neighborhood. They're building the house, and uh, we get to make some choices, but it's not overwhelming. And uh, by the way, also the builder is on the hook for the cost increase of materials over the last six months. Uh, yeah, that was a that would have been an unpleasant surprise had we been building our own spec built home. So uh, use Rowena Patton, use her and her team to buy or sell a home. If you're looking to buy, she has buyers. Uh, she has homes in all price points, and if you're looking to sell, she has buyers already lined up. Here's the phone number, 828-333-4483. That's 828-333-4483. The website is mountainhomehunt.com. Give her a call and then start packing. Jessica Thompson is an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, which specializes in litigation uh, across America, not just the Pacific Coast, um, uh, but all over the place, uh, and aimed at protecting individual liberty as guaranteed under the Constitution. And uh, she is the attorney for Crystal and Rob Waldron. They are the owners of Club 519. Uh, You mentioned this buy-in effect and i I think it's spot on the uh and this was the council of state argument that you know uh, lieutenant governor dan former lieutenant governor dan forrest was making but now legislators are making as they're attempting to uh pass a law that would uh you know define what is an emergency and what is not and like how you are supposed to behave uh as a governor because if you're not going to the council of state there are you know what nine other people that you could have asked for guidance and got input from and imagine the difference in the uh the public uh perception and and the willingness to follow uh the guidance imagine how different it could have been had he gotten the buy-in from republican members on the council of state and i i just i remember there was an argument that was being made like yeah you've got uh, in the legislature they're like you got the agriculture commissioner do you think he might have some input <laughs> about like the impacts on uh on agriculture right like uh and and to your point about the lawmakers they are closest to the people they're you're more likely to run into them at the grocery store than governor cooper um and so yeah it just it makes a lot more sense and so if you get your way, does this Emergency Management Act just get struck down? Is that the goal here? Well, so I just want to circle back to one of the points that you raised about the Council of State and just yeah. emphasize it a bit more. Um, so, you know, last election, the top vote getter that ran in a statewide election was the Commissioner of Agriculture. Yeah. And these all of the council of state positions are statewide elections and so these people are also representing everyone across the state and exactly like you said that 
they have an expertise that they bring to bear. You know, the Department of Labor, the insurance commissioner, uh, the Department of Public Instruction. These are all very important elements of the COVID-19 response that our government is going to have. And so it is important, you know, beyond partisan politics, it's important to include them. And it's also important to include them from a constitutional perspective, because, again, the North Carolina Constitution is not set up in the same way that the federal constitution is. In the federal constitution, we have a president who is in charge of the executive branch. But here in North Carolina, traditionally, we've had a weak governor constitutionally. He doesn't even have full control of the executive branch. He shares executive power with this Council of State, and he is required to consult with the Council of State for some matters. And so I do think it, I think it would have been a lot different. But to, to your actual question there, um, again, we, we believe that there are several problems with the Emergency Management Act. The fact that he can declare the emergency and declare when it ends. And there are no guidelines that that guide him, you know, to provide insight of how long an emergency might last or when it's time to call it a quit. And if the General Assembly disagrees with his determination that we're still in a state of emergency, they have no power to uh, to end this emergency under the Emergency Management Act. Uh, there are problems with the definitions of what an emergency is. And then, again, this ambiguity of does he need the concurrence of Council of State? Or can he just say that localities aren't able to control this emergency and therefore I'm I'm going to take control and issue, I'm going to create laws and I'm going to repeal laws and suspend laws for a matter of time. Uh, and, and whenever he says the localities cannot control the emergency, is there... Did he have to make a finding? Did he did he tell us why the localities can't control? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's it's almost a fig leaf. He can just say the magic words and now he has the power. Well, and, he and also that's just not, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt. I was going to say though, on the locality issue, he also uh, uh, gave them the uh, enforcement duties right he turned it back over to the locals to say you enforce this stuff if you want to and you know go after the the people not wearing masks or whatever and the capacity limits he so like on the one hand he's saying oh it's a you can't you, you can't deal with it locally but on the other hand you got to deal with it locally it was that's right messed up yeah there's it's there's a lot of double speak going on <laughs> yeah so um so i'm not so goal is to get rid of the ema get rid of the act is that the idea Yes, we okay. so we believe that top to bottom it's unconstitutional yeah. because it just grants too much legislative power, the power to make or to repeal or to suspend laws. And that power belongs in the General Assembly. And it grants too much of it to the governor without the proper procedural safeguards. And that's known as the non-delegation doctrine under North Carolina law. And that comes directly from our state constitution, separation of powers clause. And so, again, we don't want a judge to go in there and to try their best to fix it. We believe that's the job of the General yeah. Assembly to fix it. So are you worried that, like, the opposing counsel is going to listen to this and now they're going to know all your arguments? <laughs> Well, you know, there's there's nothing really to hide when you're supporting the Constitution. The, right. the Constitution is there in public and and we want to educate people about their constitutional rights, about their individual liberty. And uh, so, no, this is that's not a problem for them to know. So what kind of timeline? What are the next steps here? And I always hate that next steps slide on the PowerPoint. But like, what's the what are the what's the timeline for you? Sure. So uh, the General Assembly will be responding to our complaint uh, within the next month. 
And uh, we we can expect that we'll likely get a three judge panel, hopefully uh, soon. You know, I would I would I hazard a guess that it would be within the next month or at least this summer. Um, but but we're pushing forward and looking forward to presenting these arguments before the three judge panel. And if people hear this and they want to support you, support the Waldrons, I think obviously if they're in the Greenville area, go patronize their establishment. But how uh, how else can people support the effort here? Absolutely. So, yeah, you don't have to uh, have your bar named in a lawsuit to be a part of this fight. You can go to Pacific Legal Foundation, uh, you know, just Google us and we're all over social media. We have on our, our own website. You can subscribe for updates. Go check out the case page, see more documents uh, that we filed in the case. And uh, yeah, just follow along for more updates. Uh, We'll be pushing out more information as it comes available. Is there anything else that uh, you want to add that you think is important or interesting that I haven't already asked you? You know, I would just say that it's so important for North Carolinians to know that that this isn't over. Um, I want to read just one thing from the governor's executive order, the most recent one. He says, if the state's COVID-19 case rate increases, if state vaccination rate slows, or if new evidence arises regarding the risk of COVID-19 and its variants, it may be necessary to reevaluate whether additional restrictions are necessary to reduce the risk of death and serious illness from COVID-19. And so the state of emergency continues you know, next week he could say the vaccination rates have slowed and I'm reinstituting capacity restrictions. And so it's vitally important for all of our individual liberty that we continue this fight. And I'm so thankful that Crystal Waldron and Club 519 are willing to stand up and fight for all North Carolinians. Well, and I appreciate you the work that you're doing. I appreciate you coming on the show to talk with us. I always learn a lot when I talk with you about this stuff. Jessica Thompson, an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll bring you back on. Keep us posted. And, uh, you know, best of luck in the endeavor. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Pete. It's always great to be on with you. You can go check out the work, by the way, at PacificLegal.org, PacificLegal.org. Um, all right. So I want to read a, a letter that I got, an email uh, from Ken. He's a longtime listener. And uh, this is one of the things when you know I do advertising for, obviously, for clients, uh, for local businesses and such. And uh, for folks who really don't understand how that works, just a little peek behind the curtain. I, I vet the people that I endorse, right? I, I visit their stores, their operations. I ask them a lot of questions. They'll tell you, like I interview them. <laughs> I sit down with them. I call it the info dump and I just get all this information. And then I write up uh, various scripts and, uh, you know, sort of bullet points so I can remember things to talk about. And we're in, you know, contact throughout uh, the weeks and the months in order to, you know, keep apprised of all of the, you know, uh, if they're running sales and that sort of thing or any developments with their businesses. So I, I put a lot of effort into making sure that the businesses that I bring to you that want to support the show are worth your time too, right? Like these are good people and good businesses. So I love getting letters like this or, or emails uh, like this. And this one comes from Ken. He says, Pete, My wife had been bothering me for months about needing a new bed. So I gave in with only one stipulation, which is we had to go to Mattress Man because of the support that he has shown to you. Uh, We had figured that this was going to take all day. We got to the store at 11 and we were done before noon. (laughs) So not quite all day, less than an hour. He says, I was excited to see that Chuck was going to assist us. Uh, He asked what we like and off we went. 
Chuck is the owner, by the way, and chances are you'll you'll run into him at some point if you're there. Um, now, I had left the house, he says, planning on spending at least $3,000 on a mattress alone, just a mattress. That was what he was uh, figuring. He says, we ended up selecting a Biltmore mattress, and when he told me the price, I actually had to make him repeat it. And then he told me that the Memorial Day special includes a free adjustable base. I literally did not believe him. <laughs> and I was just waiting for the catch, but of course it never came. We got everything we wanted for half of what I had anticipated. And believe me, he says, I was knowledgeable about pricing because I had been looking online for a week to get an idea of what to expect. So Ken did his research, obviously. So he had an idea of what the mattresses would cost. He goes in there with three grand and it's like, yeah, it's not even, it's like half that. <laughs> so um, the best part, I was sure that it was going to be a long wait because nobody has anything in stock. I've been talking about this for a while as well. Uh, the pandemic stuff, the labor shortages and everything else just created, um, uh, it created crunches in the distribution systems and the manufacturing processes. And so you've got a lot of these furniture companies, you can't get stuff uh, immediately. That was not the case with Mattress Man. He told me it would be here on our requested day next week with free delivery to boot. We were so blown away with Mattress Man. I went ahead and bought my daughter a new mattress, too. <laughs> he says, I wanted to support the local business that supports this show. Uh, and besides, we had extra cash with all the money that we saved, so might as well. He says, I'm sorry this is such a long letter, but I needed a lot of words to express how happy I am about your sponsor. I can guarantee that had it not been for you, we would never have thought of them. So thank you very much. That is from Ken. And no, Ken, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I've gotten uh, letters like this or messages like this uh, from Manuel, from Paul. Uh, I get I get letters and messages, I keep saying letters, and I guess that's antiquated, but it still serves its purpose, right? <clears throat> that uh, people who go to these companies, these local businesses, and um, and they're supporting a business that supports the the content that they like, but they're also getting great deals, right? That's the that's the point. I'm not I'm not trying to put you in touch with some you know business that's going to charge you an arm and a leg for a inferior product. In fact. We're going to find you businesses like Mattress Man that give you great deals on high-quality merchandise, uh, and that's what they've been doing for years. Chuck over at Mattress Man is a great guy. He does a lot of work in the community as well. He donates mattresses to local nonprofits and stuff. Uh, and yes, you can get a free box spring with the uh, purchase of a mattress that's part of the Biltmore collection. These are made by Restonic. Uh, you got Synchrony Finance deals, so if you maybe you're not Ken, you you, you want to finance this, you can do that. They've got lots of flexible financing options. Synchrony offers a zero down, zero interest for up to 72 months for qualified applicants. So head on over to any of their four stores like Ken did, Asheville, Arden, Hendersonville. Uh, they ship nationwide. They have five-star local delivery and a 120-day comfort guarantee online at mattressmanstores.com. Experience the difference at Mattressman, mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. All right, so here's a story out of the Rhino Times out of uh, Greensboro by Scott Yost. On Monday, May 24th, state health officials announced that they will provide information regarding COVID infections that have been detected in poop. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, he says, file this under the more information than I needed category. 
Um, but if you're the type of person who is interested in the presence of COVID-19 that has traveled via human poop into wastewater, well, the state's going to have you covered. It's going to be part of the COVID-19 dashboard, uh, it is an, which is an updated uh, daily website. It keeps track of and makes public all sorts of COVID-19 data pertaining to North Carolina. I go to the dashboard regularly. Uh, it's good for, it, it, well, it's good to monitor stuff, but, you know, a lot of media use it to scare people. Um, anyway, in uh, in order to better understand COVID-19 and its spread, he says, as well as understand the degree of prevalence in parts of the state, the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services is testing samples of water from select wastewater treatment plants across the state, and uh, they're looking for the virus in the poop. And uh, here's a quote uh, as a description of the program, quote, people with COVID-19 shed, that's shed viral particles in their stool. These viral particles are pieces of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which caused COVID-19 when still intact. In wastewater, the particles are no longer infectious. Interesting. So, me, so in wastewater, it's no longer infectious. That explains that story out of India, what, like a week or two ago. Remember, did you hear the story where people were smearing themselves? Okay, I'll just stop there. Okay, but like they were, <laughs> they were, they, the, the government had to put out a, a PSA telling people don't do this <laughs> because it's unhealthy. But now that now it makes sense. Now it makes sense. If wastewater uh, is not a, a viable habitat for the virus, then maybe that's why they were doing it. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, um, the viral particles are a piece of the virus uh, when still intact in wastewater. The particles are no longer infectious, but can still be measured. Testing wastewater for these viral particles allows us to track COVID-19 trends among people contributing to the wastewater. Data from the sites serve as a supplemental metric to understand the impacts of COVID-19 at the community level. The project is a joint effort between the NCDHHS, the University of North Carolina System Researchers, Wastewater Utilities, and Public Health Departments in the state. Now, I do recall there was a story, uh, I'm trying to remember where, it may have been, well, it was a college. I, I want to say it was like Wisconsin or something, but they had actually identified an outbreak and then quarantined all of the students uh, who were in a dorm room, I want to say, because they had detected they were testing the wastewater uh, from the campus dorms. And when they found the presence of COVID-19, they uh, they locked down, I think it was one of the dorm buildings. And uh, there were kids that were in there that um, that were not symptomatic, right? And they didn't even know they had it. They it was just very mild for them or whatever. Uh, and so by locking them down for two weeks or whatever it was, they contained that outbreak. So like, I, I understand it's kind of a weird story, kind of funny, kind of ew, gross as well. And also like, why are they doing this? Uh, but it does kind of make some bit of sense, especially if you're worried about the variants coming along and being, you know, worse. If you can have sort of an early warning system about an outbreak that is uh, starting up, then you can short circuit the outbreak. So that makes sense. Uh, kind of gross, <laughs> but but it does kind of make sense. Um, let me shift gears here. Uh, locally, the Asheville City Council voted to enter into a series of contracts with several hotels to provide non-congregate emergency shelter for the homeless to provide rooms for people. They don't call them, by the way, home. Well, this story does homeless, but uh, WLOS apparently is not up with the new lingo. It's houseless. 
<clears throat> they call them houseless, which is weird because I think like I'm houseless, right? I'm houseless. I don't have a house. Uh, could you maybe like apartmentless? Maybe that's a better term, apartmentless, because they have a home. It's their tent. And they were camping on public property. And then the mean old city came in and said, you can't camp on public property because, you know, it's unsanitary. People are camping all in this area and there's no sanitation. And that's how you get like the plague. <laughs> so uh, they have uh, they've thrown a bunch of money at local hotels, which is interesting because the same people who have been demanding that we solve the the houseless apartmentless problem, uh, who also don't want any more homes or apartments to be built. Um, they've they've also been adamantly against hotels. And here we have hotels that are helping to solve the houseless, apartmentless problem. I guess I should also throw in condoless, the condoless. So the houseless, apartmentless, condoless. All right. Also, I guess, well, manufactured home, menu, or so should we call them trailers? Can I say trailers? I don't mean it in a pejorative term. I'm just trying to define the uh, the housing stock. You know. So okay. So homeless, or so sorry, houseless, apartmentless, condoless, and trailerless. Uh, so here come the hotels that are contributing to the solution. The Sunrise Community for Recovery and Wellness will provide on-site services at the hotels and Axis Security will provide the, uh, well, the security, obviously, um, not the cops, uh, probably because there are very few police left on the force nowadays, but also don't want the cops on the premises. No, no, because cops are bad. The city of Asheville has already temporarily placed 116 people experiencing homelessness at some local hotels through other agreements, among them the Red Roof Inn. According to city documents, 27% of the people they place there have been now permanently housed. They are using money from the ARP, the American Rescue Plan. They're using uh, this uh, federal money from the American Rescue Plan to do it. Um, the city council voted to allocate $438,000. This is uh, part of a larger $10 million budget to increase long-term shelter options. That is a wrap for the episode. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. Remember, subscribe. Uh, just go to thepetecalendarshow.com. Think about becoming a patron, and I'll talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.